The new Willy Wonka Golden Ticket Games from the Virginia Lottery are here. The Scratcher gives you the chance to win up to $100,000. The online game gives you the chance to win up to $1 million. For more information, visit VALottery.com. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna. To keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night. No matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale, even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch when it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great. What, do you not like Andy Rooney? I don't like whipped cream on nipples. <laughs> I think it's dumb and sticky. And also, I don't trust birds. Welcome to No Dogs what? in Space, everybody. No, 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 no. She, I had a better one. She really doesn't trust birds. <laughs> Actually, I don't. I don't. That This is all real. This is all yeah. real. I was going to do a whole bit about how Iggy Pop is a Stan Lee of punk, and he keeps making a cameo in every episode. <laughs> You're, we're about to find out. We're about to find out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm Marcus Parks. I'm Carolina Hidalgo. And uh, welcome to the last episode of the season. It is. At it least is. as far as, you know, bands being covered goes. We got one more episode after this little Q&A session. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is the last episode the last band of the season. It's the Screamers Part 2. And don't worry, we're going to be coming back with the season 1.5. We already have an idea. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we've got an it's idea. It's a little punk, too. It, so. it's, it's, in, it's in the realm. And then we'll be, you know, of course, coming back with uh, season two uh, this summer. Oh. So let's get into Screamers Part 2. Let's fucking do this. All right. So when we last left the Screamers, the show at the Orpheum featuring the Weirdos, the Zeros, and the Germs had kick-started the nascent Los Angeles punk scene, and a subsequent four-show run from The Damned added even more momentum. In the middle of all this was the aforementioned Slash, LA's first punk zine, whose first issue featured an interview with Dave Vanian of The Damned as the cover story. The Screamers, who had yet to play a show, featured heavily in the issue as well. As such, when it came time for the release of the first issue of Slash, it seemed only appropriate that the launch party should also be the first show performed by the Screamers. It makes sense. It does. It don't, I mean, okay, so the very first Slash issue ever came out in May of 1977. And that starts, the whole thing starts with an editorial that simply, like the title headline said, so this is war, eh? <laughs> <laughs> and it pretty much sums up how awful the 70s have been when it comes to mainstream music, meaning disco music pretty mm-hmm. much and hoping that the punks can like set this rat infested industry on fire because <laughs> it sure could use a little brightness that's a quote that's great i love that yeah and then it goes on to say that slash was born out of curiosity and hope 
which I very much enjoy. I love that. And and to see what the possible rebirth of true rebel music looks and sounds like, which is fair to say, you know, there's a new movement going on and someone needs to document it. Absolutely. That, I mean, that's what a lot of these punk zines were doing. Like, it was just, there's something cool going on. I want to be a part of it. Therefore, I'm going to put out this cool fucking zine to be a part of it. Exactly. And, like, if, if you know how to take a picture, you'll be like, I'll be the photographer. Yeah. I'll be the writer. <laughs> you know, and there's people from every level, every side of that, that can be a part of this, which I think is great. It's great. I mean, it's the nature of the whole movement. Yeah. So, okay. So, May 28th, which actually happened to be Tomato Duplenny's birthday, (laughs) they had their launch party, the Slash launch party, and they booked the Screamers to play, even though the Screamers, remember, had never played a gig before. That's great. They were a band already. They had a whole thing. Remember, they've been rehearsing for months. Uh, They've been getting dressed up and hanging out at shows and posing for pictorials. Like, they've done everything a band does except play a gig. (laughs) So, now it's time for them to show, like, what they sound like. So, over two... 200 people, uh, some say more, like, but it was hundreds of people squeezed into this tiny little storefront place where the party was being held. And everyone saw the screamers for the very first time. And they thrilled everyone. Yeah, yeah their sound, their movements, obviously the dancing, the whole aesthetic. The, it just showed that this was the future. Uh, one reviewer for Slash described the Screamers as not entertainment, but an assault. Oh, that's great. <laughs> now that's the band I want to see live. Exactly. Like everyone could just immediately see their potential. And they were excited that this was coming out from like this new scene that only been around literally a few months. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so this is like the beginning and everyone was so jazzed and excited and drunk. And it was just <laughs> a big, powerful moment. Just this tiny little storefront. And it was already beginning. Yeah. I mean, it's you know, the show at the Orpheum uh, had happened like. Like the the scene had kind of kicked off, but this is uh, something different altogether. Like there's something about the grimy storefront uh, venue, the grimy storefront show that really makes you think like, this is fucking real, man. (laughs) This is fucking raw. Like I'm fucking a part of something here. In Lubbock, it was called Space 1110. And also Tokyo Joe's was also a wonderful uh, DIY venue out there. Uh, But there's something and both of them were in former storefronts. So there's something about that storefront venue that just screams. So going off of the momentum of a relatively successful first show, the Screamers were able to book a gig at the Starwood Club on July 4th, 1977. Now concerning the venue, the Starwood itself had quite a history. Known in the mainstream as the club where Motley Crue played their first show in 1981 and where bassist Nikki Six worked as a janitor, the Starwood also launched the careers of Quiet Riot, Van Halen, and Wasp. Wow. Fuck like a beast. (laughs) (laughs) But besides all the hair metal, the Starwood was also one of the two places in 1977 where punk bands could play. And it also launched bands like X, the Circle Jerks, the Dickies, and Fear. Now, the Starwood was owned by a drug kingpin named Eddie Nash. The best fucking drug kingpin name I've ever heard. Eddie Nash. (laughs) Eddie Nash, yeah. (laughs) And Eddie was believed to be the mastermind behind the Wonderland murders that involved legendary porn star John Holmes, a.k.a. Johnny Wad, and a whole bunch of quaaludes. Uh, but essentially, John John Holmes, if you've ever seen Boogie Nights, Dirk Diggler was John Holmes. Right. That whole scene with... Cats uh... <laughs> Casmo. Yeah. <laughs> like, that was somewhat like, yeah, the scene with Alfred Molina, like, that's kind of based on the Wonderland murders. Kind of, sort of. I think oh, so, the right? goddamn safe in the goddamn bedroom. <laughs> like, that's, that. yeah, that's Wonderland. Well, consequently, when the Starwood was raided in connection with the Wonderland murders, where four people were bludgeoned to death with a ferocity that rivaled the Manson family... 
Cops found a box containing over 4,000 quaaludes marked for distribution at the box office. Is this for Wasp or Van Halen <laughs> or Circle Jerks? This is for everybody. Ah. See, Nash had been using the Starwood to sell ludes pretty much in public view. Because when cops saw people lining up to buy ludes, they thought the line was for concert tickets. <laughs> well, I mean, it doesn't take a detective to think that. <laughs> That's what I would think, too. (laughs) Yeah, it's the perfect scheme. Not surprisingly, though, the club was shut down in 1981 due to an abundance of noise complaints, fights between fans and neighborhood folk, and underage drinking. It was said that Black Flag fans in particular would have scuffles. That would happen a lot, especially in the in the second wave, uh, the second generation of uh, of punk when it got a little more hardcore. There was a there was a little more fighting, a lot more fighting, <laughs> a lot more violence. Now, during the Screamers' first and only show at the Starwood on July fourth, nineteen seventy seven, they debuted their cover of the Sonny and Cher classic "The Beat Goes On." In this cover, the Screamers, like Richard Hell and the Voidoids with Blank Generation, rewrote some of the lyrics, replacing the mini skirts, the current thing, with. Anarchy was the current rage, all delivered in a suitable Johnny Rotten-esque sneer. So it's their song with And the Beat Goes On. <laughs> I like it. And the Beat Goes On, yeah. <laughs> and seeing as how this Starwood show was on the 4th of July, the Screamers decided to do something special, using the old performance artist standby of desecrating the American flag. Just before going on stage, the Screamers hung four flags as their backdrop, which owner Eddie Nash, remember Eddie Nash the drug kingpin, he loved it because he couldn't imagine flags on the 4th of July being used for anything but a patriotic display. And just all around seasonal decor, (laughs) right? Just looks good. Everyone's reminded it's the 4th of July. Maybe they'll drink more. But when the set ended, the Screamers pulled out cans of black spray paint and utterly destroyed all four flags, presumably amidst a din of synthesizers, drums, and screaming. Eddie Nash, great American that he was got so offended by the desecration that he banned the Screamers from the club permanently, and according to one source, temporarily banned all punk from the Starwood. 
<laughs> the screamers did that. Yeah, screamers did that. Yeah, they almost got an entire genre of music banned from a club. But he, they were trying to make a statement. Yeah. Did they explain that to Eddie Nash? Did Eddie Nash understand their artistic statement? <laughs> I mean, this sort of this kind of attitude of like "fuck you," we're gonna do whatever we want. It's the screamers' mo. It's kind of their calling card and it getting them into trouble and. Uh, destroying opportunities ah yes (laughs) we're good at that they're very very good at that but for the screamers being banned from the starwood meant that their options for venues had been reduced solely to the whiskey a go-go at least in 1977 and whiskey a go-go was coincidentally run by the guys who ran the starwood previous to eddie nash back when it was called pj's disco (laughs) you know what Old PJ's Disco Entertainment. Now that's now that's old good entertainment, wholesome American entertainment. Not this screamer shit. <laughs> I get it. Spray paints. I mean, that's flammable. Yeah. They could have like, turned the whole store wood into like it just burnt it down to ashes. It did eventually burn down. Oh, I knew it. I knew it. And it was probably not an accident. The Screamers, however, did have some famous admirers to take away the sting of the band. Somehow, word of the Screamers got to Iggy Pop. Take a drink. (laughs) And Iggy directed members of his fan club to contact the Screamers for a private show at Iggy's Malibu Beach House. (laughs) Yes. The Screamers were booked to play at Iggy Pop's house. (laughs) They were offered 200 bucks to do it. So why not? Yeah, why not? 200 bucks is pretty good. Yeah. So so the Screamers, they showed up with their synthesizers. They rang the doorbell. They're like, hey, we're the Screamers. And the person at the door was like, Oh, great. Okay, come on in. Jim wants to meet you. And so Tomato, Tommy, KK, David, they walk through the hallways thinking, who's Jim? (laughs) We'll find out. And then they finally get to the room where they meet a fully nude Iggy Pop. (laughs) Iggy Pop just gets up and shakes her hand and then hugs them. It's his house. Yes, hugs them fully nude. Two arms and a leg. And then what does he say? So glad you guys could come today. Very nice to meet you. Whatever you guys want. Food, drinks, drugs, girls, guys too, whatever. Hey, just make yourselves at home. (laughs) (laughs) Fully nude. Yes. Impressively nude. That's what you can always say about a geek pop. Impressively nude. And so the screamers are like, Thank you. Uh, So where are we playing? Uh, Should we wait until the party starts? And Iggy's like, no, man, this is it. (laughs) Just a handful of people on the couch. (laughs) About a dozen people or so. So cut to like 20 minutes later, and the screamers are playing their set in Iggy Pop's living room, (laughs) like next to the fire furnace place. (laughs) And and they're just like a whole bunch of people just sitting on the couch, just staring at them. (laughs) And Iggy is between the couch of people and the band, dancing his heart out, completely alone, just the only one moving other than Tomato, who's also moving, I guess. And Still nude. Yes, completely. Yes. And Iggy loved the set so much. He's just bobbing his head around and dancing. You know, he danced, you know, back to his room and he came back a minute later still dancing <laughs> with a white poster board and with a black marker and he wrote Tomorrow's Leaders on it. And then tomorrow's leader sign and then he he held it up to the band while still dancing and then turning around and holding it up to the people on the couch <laughs> and then back to the band and pointing at it too with his pointer finger being like you guys you guys rock man you guys rock yeah it's like turning into an iggy pop show yes <laughs> iggy pop has to make it into an iggy pop show and well i mean the guys they 
they had nothing but nice things to say and said like that was the weirdest gig we've ever done yeah (laughs) (laughs) so so far actually so far so far up to that point yes and then the check bounced yes (laughs) yeah yeah well you know iggy was (laughs) it was like a weird phase where he was lusting for life (laughs) at that time yeah this was uh yeah a couple years this is 78 or was this still 77 this is still 77 yeah because remember lust for life had not done too well because uh elvis died uh and there was and he you know they were on the same label so when elvis died uh all the record pressing plants were all busy pressing elvis records so lust for life did great in the beginning and then nobody could buy the fucking album uh and that's why iggy pop's check bounce <laughs> <laughs> that might be part of it yes well pretty soon after the iggy experience david brown parted ways from the screamers and co-founded danger house records with pat garrett i i know i'm sorry what sorry with pat garrett no uh, danger house oh. <laughs> not danger mouse i you- said it all week <laughs> All right, sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, Pat was the guy, he had recorded the original Screamers demos uh, at Wilton Hilton. And yeah, Danger House, they were among the first, if not the first, L.A. punk label. Oh, yeah, definitely among the first, for sure. Um, yeah, the David, he when he left the Screamers, he left the Screamers not on the best terms yeah. with Tomato and Tommy, but pretty soon he landed on his feet, like what you said, with Pat Garrett, who was actually K.K. Barrett. Remember, K.K. Barrett being the, the drummer from the Screamers, it's his old college friend from Oklahoma. So, yeah, so Pat just moved to L.A. and and KK introduced David to Pat and it's like then they hit it off and they figured out, let's put together an independent music label with our other pal, Black Randy. (laughs) Oh, Black Randy. Yes. Who David described as a tragic mixture of genius and (laughs) self-abuse. Can we sidestep for a minute about Black Randy? Of course. Let's do it real quick. Yeah, we can play a Black Randy song if you want as well. Oh, absolutely. Okay, Black Randy. He was a... he was a hustler, he was a drug addict, he was an alcoholic, he was a diabetic, he was a con man and a compulsive liar. <laughs> <laughs> but he was very charismatic and surprisingly likable. <laughs> There's a million stories about him. They really are. And many of them include being blackout drunk yeah. and or shitting in a girl's purse just because she went to the bathroom and left it unattended. <laughs> So it's a lot of those Black Randy stories. You know, yeah. We all had a Black Randy at one point in our lives. Of course, we've all had Black Randys. Or if yeah. you were the Black Randy, I hope you're doing okay now. <laughs> yeah, my Black Randy was named Phil. He's doing great. Okay, good. <laughs> and so Black Randy, yeah, he was in a, in a band, of course, Black Randy and the Metro Squad, or Black Randy and his elite Metro Squad, whatever you want to call it. And, you know, they were a really fun early L.A. punk band with, like, it was... It was not all punk. It was very like 60s soul funk vibe to them. Like it was just fun stuff. And, you know, David Brown would play in it sometimes. Pat Garrett, of course. I mean, they it was all in-house, of course. And, and KK, too, sometimes. Mm-hmm. And actually, a lot of people were involved with the whole Black Randy and the Metro Squad. It, it, it was, I mean, because it, it was funny. It was gross. It was entertaining. It was filled with satirical songs like Edie, I mean, I'm your man. Uh <laughs> Loner with a boner is one. I'm a loner with a boner and I'm going to tell a phoner. <laughs> you want to hear a Black Randy song? Of course. What are we going to play? Why don't we play Loner with a Boner? All right. Sounds yeah, good. So much better than the cover of I'm Black and I'm Proud. <laughs> he thought that was funny too. Of course. Let's hear Loner with a Boner. I'm a loner with a boner and I'm going to tell a phoner. I'm a loner with a boner and I'm going to tell a phoner. I'm a loner with a boner and I'm going to tell a phoner. 
kind of like a joke band yeah so it was david brown pat garrett and black randy who started this label right danger house kk helped out in the beginning as well and david and pat they were still working their day jobs while they were doing this and throwing like thousands of dollars away to keep their dream alive of, of putting out EPs and, and and a full-length album eventually, while Black Randy got drunk and made all kinds of stupid promises to bands they couldn't keep. <laughs> so Danger House eventually folded about two years later. But, you know, they left behind a very powerful document of the first wave of the L.A. punk scene, and that's amazing that they have that. Abs- we can have that. The, the compilations are on Spotify. Yeah, they're, and they're fucking great. I mean, they put out arguably like the punk single of the uh, LA scene, the early LA scene. They put out We Got the Neutron Bomb yeah. by the Weirdos. That was Danger House. And they also put out fucking classics from Avengers uh, up in San Francisco. They put out X's very first uh, single, and they put out this classic by the Dills. <laughs> short and sweet yeah and I like songs where I immediately know the title (laughs) that's so helpful now after David Brown left the Screamers to found Danger House the band hired a 17 year old kid named Jeff McGregor as a temporary replacement with Jeff the Screamers started playing shows at a DIY venue called The Mask yeah, the mask, not like Jim Carrey. No, like like <laughs> like uh, French and fancy. Yeah, like the, the, there's a Q and a U and an E there. The Le mask. mask. Yes, uh, the mask. They well, let's go down to the mask. Yeah. Shall we go down? Let's go down. We'll, we'll go down like like that one scene in Goodfellas with the Copacabana. You know what I mean? <laughs> All right, just follow me. Okay, you're in the heart of Hollywood. Yeah. Right. You're dead center of Hollywood. You're in the middle of the O of one of the O's <laughs> of Hollywood. And in front of you, what do you see? 
a porno theater. Sweet. Yes. Okay. <laughs> the Pussycat Theater for adult entertainment. <laughs> well, you're not going to go there. No. Instead, you go around the back alley, down a long set of concrete stairs. Do not hurt yourself. No. And into this 10,000 square foot basement venue that's roughly the size of two basketball courts. And it's dark and filthy and it smells. Perfect. There's graffiti on every inch of the walls. And they all say things like, ignore alien orders. <laughs> and I stink, therefore I am. <laughs> very clever. <laughs> yes, very clever ones. Kill a cop. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. And, and, and names of all the bands that played there at one point. You know, like bands, like and there's a million of them. But like the Weirdos, the Germs, the Zeros, the Dickies, X, the Bags, the Go-Go's, the Dills, the Plugs, and on and on and on. Yeah. And of course, the Screamers. Actually, the Screamers recorded their set at the mask on December 16, 1977, which you can find on YouTube. It was a whole thing that they were going to do live at the mask. Uh, but, you know, you, you can find it on YouTube. Now. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Obviously, nothing came out. <laughs> so the mask, yes, it's steeped in history in the beginning of the L.A. punk scene. And remember, this is all happening in 1977. This is all in a period of months yeah. that we've been talking about, like the Orphan show that you said in April, the damn playing two days later slash magazine debuts in May. Uh, screamers play at their launch. Danger House Records starts in July, August. And now in August of 1977, the mask opens for business. Man. Kinda. Well, kinda. Kinda. So, kinda. I mean, yeah, it's a, it's an illegal DIY venue. Yeah. <laughs> yes. The whole idea. Well, yes. The whole idea of the mask, it really started because a Scottish 27-year-old guy named Brendan Mullen wanted to rent out a place to play his drums in peace with him and his friends. That's all he wanted without bothering anyone. Mm -hmm. And he thought of renting out a space and like making it into a rehearsal space with several rooms so he can rent it out to other bands and make rent from that. It all made sense. Like I got a bunch of friends who who would love this kind of place, right? Yeah. And from becoming a rehearsal studio, it became a popular hangout spot. And then some weekend parties followed. And then, ta-da, it's an illegal live music <laughs> venue where you bring your own booze and you get charged two fifty at the door and they have their own bouncer and everything. So it's a whole place now. Wow. Yes. And this is the stomping grounds that the scene needed. You know, I mean, it wasn't all great, of course. There was chaos. Yeah. And, and, and sometimes fights and bathrooms didn't work and, and you know, just grossness people said like if you weren't seen vomiting at the mask then what were you doing <laughs> i'm paraphrasing yeah. uh, but so yeah, yeah lots of issues but obviously people look back on it now as like a place where they they had like a sense of community yeah i guess uh and this all lasted about this community this whole mask thing lasted about six months until it was shut down by the fire marshal in january 1978 Ugh, the fire marshal the fucking public enemy number one for a diy I mean, venue i would think that but then remember Great White? <laughs> and remember all the shows from the last five years? I remember a lot of those things, yeah. There was one way to... Remember, you followed me down. <laughs> there was only one way to get in and out. Mm -hmm. A tiny set of stairs, concrete stairs, for hundreds of people in a basement. Yeah. I mean... I get it. Sometimes it goes bad. Maybe you should have another exit. <laughs> but I just, I mean, I get it. I get it. Yeah. But I mean, it was a fun thing that definitely eventually got out of hand and they had to shut it down. So, uh, you know, Brendan opened the mask too, or also called as the other mask, uh, which unfortunately didn't last very long either. 
But by then, you know what? Punk bands were able to perform in lots of other spaces and venues. Finally, the Whiskey and, you know, Starwood, of course. And all these other places were opening up Hong Kong Cafe. So, like, if anything, it was a great jumping off point to the beginning of the scene back then. Yeah. I mean, venues like that are are 100% necessary. It always starts small when it comes to, like, new movements. Like, you know, like punk starts in the UK, you know, starting in like small pubs and things like that. And LA, it started in fucking dingy basements. <laughs> yes. So once Jeff McGregor's time was up, he was permanently replaced by Paul Rossler, whose sister Kira was actually better known in the punk scene than Paul was because Kira played bass on six Black Flag albums, including this classic, Slip It In. Yeah. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Get 20% off your first order at TommyJohn.com slash Pandora. Save 20% at TommyJohn.com slash Pandora. See site for details. Hey, Hotels.com here. Struggling to keep up with your toddler? We know a hotel that'll keep them entertained. Book family-friendly hotels with pools in the Hotels.com app to find your perfect somewhere. With Paul Rossler and the band, the Screamers established themselves as one of the best punk bands to see live in Los Angeles, combining innovative and groundbreaking music with a level of performance that no other band at the time could touch. That's so true. I mean, we were just talking last night to a guy who told us that he's seen the, the Screamers play several times and he's like, there's nothing like it. Yeah, he said there was the, the best shows that he saw. He's like, there was absolute, and it, we he didn't we didn't prompt him to say that. We no. didn't we didn't tell him. We like, were in a Zoom meeting. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't know. Yeah, we just said like, yeah, you know, we're doing a series on the Screamers and his ears perked up. He's like, the Screamers, that was the best live band I've ever seen. I know, I'm like, like I, wow. I believe you. I totally believe you. Because I mean, the Screamers at this point, their gigs got a lot more elaborate the bigger they got with different props and set lists. I mean, sometimes they would start their set with this like 
big, heavy, black plastic tarp, like huge, just stretch across the entire front of the show. And then you'd see like a knife slide down or maybe some fingers rip across and then slicing in half, which reveals like tomato with a knife. And the whole <laughs> band just starts playing like all at the same time. It's it's just perfect. I mean, it's hard. To, you can't really say it. Yeah. <laughs> but just imagine your braids. And, you know, they would switch up props depending on the location. But the only thing that always remained the same was how they wanted the audience to react. They wanted to manipulate the audience into feeling just one thing, anxiety. Yes. That's what they wanted. Their performance was just it not it maybe even more important than the music itself. Like Tomato racing from one side of the stage to the other, dancing, jumping, and making eye contact with every single person he could find in the crowd. And he had a hell of a bit, like he had a hell of a stare. Yes. Like his stares, like it would make me uncomfortable. It would give me a little bit of anxiety. Imagine just someone just staring at you and then bringing the mic up to their face and be like, be punished or be damned. You know, like it's it's crazy. And yeah. he'd scream into the mic with this violent energy because he's always screaming. Obviously, the screamers. Yeah. And Tomato really gave it his all. It was a truly punk show, and there wasn't even a guitar or bass in sight, which is amazing. So the show would start with this frenetic energy, like it, you know, it would go really like uh, everyone be dancing or pogoing or whatever they were doing, and then they get slow and scary. Then they they do a little slow part in the middle. That's what the screamers like to do. Just 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 right at the moment when you kind of get a little bit comfortable and then bam, it's back to frenetic energy again. Yeah. And then you had to jump around and move around and just watch, have this guy stare at you the whole time. <laughs> it's kind of like a roller coaster ride. And this is something both Tomato and Tommy put a lot of thought into. Yeah. So their show is always guaranteed a good time. But there was one show that was kind of mixed. <laughs> it, I guess you could say. It was a little bit of different response. And that was the time the Screamers performed at a mental institution at the Camarillo State Hospital on March 23rd, 1978. Before the Cramps did it. Three months before the Cramps played Napa State Mental Hospital that we talked about in the Cramps series. Yep. Yes. So here in Camarillo State Hospital, it was an Easter dance party for the patients there. So the screamers somehow were booked as the live entertainment. For an Easter dance. Yes. <laughs> so the screamers, they go there and they get on stage with their wacky clothes and their spiky hair standing straight up. And almost immediately they get heckled by a patient with a, hey, what unit are you from? <laughs> uh -huh. uh, did you hear that? I said that. Oh. And then another one would yell like, play Zeppelin. I've been here a while. <laughs> <laughs> and so the screamers, they were definitely hit or miss with the audience when they played. Like, they liked the song Vertigo. The patients loved Vertigo. Everyone loves Vertigo. Yes. And a lot of patients, they dance in their own freeform way that we talk about. You know, just move in any way you want to do. You know, just move to the music. Have fun with it. Of course. And they even did an encore and uh, played the uh, I'll Go Steady with Twiggy song. So everyone really loved it afterwards. Oh, well, everyone. Half the people really <laughs> loved it. And afterwards, uh, they signed a few autographs and passed out Screamers fan club applications <laughs> oh that's sweet yes and, and helped them out with that you know like what do i write here it's like oh just put in your shoe size <laughs> and even though the screamers weren't a hit with everyone all in all they pulled off a great performance and you know they were on a streak for a while here mm -hmm. this is like they were huge at this point no they were doing fucking great and the, the word of mouth on the street with the screamers was huge and I'll also say, uh, just as a quick side note, I think quite a few of our listeners work in the mental health field. And if you want to bring back planned bands at mental institutions, I think now's the time to do it. 
Why not? I mean, the screamers have not been around now for no, 30 years. No, of course not. But, you know, neither are the cramps. So let's uh, just get a new band. Book a band. Book, Book a, a band. band. Book a band. See what happens. There and then let go. us know how it goes. All right. But know yeah. that we're not legally culpable for what happens. No. None whatsoever. <laughs> Tell us, though. Now, around the time that Paul Rossler joined the band, another essential piece of the Screamers aesthetic would fall into place when legendary cartoonist Gary Panter, best known for his Jimbo comics and lesser known for being the set designer of Pee-wee's Playhouse, designed the Screamers logo. Now, it's been assumed time and again that Gary Panter designed the Screamers logo based solely on Tomato Duplenty's trademark straight-to-the-sky spiked hair and shaved sideburns, what's known as the Egon Schiele look. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, it's very recognizable. But in an interview with PleaseKillMe.com, Gary Panter said that the logo was actually a combination of that look and a character he developed years before, an android wrestler that had been electrocuted in a storm. Which, yeah, it, I see it. You see I it. I see it now. You absolutely see it. I mean, and, and that's the thing is that, you know, you've seen the Screamers logo, you listeners out there. Like, you've seen it in one form or another. As drummer K.K. Barrett said, the Screamers logo is now more famous than the Screamers themselves. It sits alongside the Black Flag bars, the DK logo, the Ramon seal. It sits right there with one of the most recognizable symbols in punk rock that's been stolen and repurposed again and again. And like many simple iconic logos it finds a home in some bizarre places. In 1990, a 1-900 insult line called 1-900-2 insult stole the logo, added some pink, and ran ads using the cartoon version of Tomato Duplenty's face. This is that ad. It's so stupid. <laughs> it's in. This is dial and insult. This is dial and insult. Jesus Christ. That's like <laughs> the biggest insult. <laughs> Oh, no. And then Tomato's just like reading the newspaper while like, you know, women are scurrying their children away from him. He's like, I wonder what's going on. It's his face all over the commercial. Yeah, it really is. And he saw the ad on TV. And so Tomato actually called 1-900-2-INSULT. And he asked them like, hi, I'm the insult guy. Could you stop? Using my face. Stop using my face. And then finally he like got through to somebody actually in the business. And then that person just stonewalled him and insisted that the logo was actually a depiction of their boss and founder, Irving. Was it? Yeah. Was it? He kept saying, and this is like 1990. So this is like, you know, 12 or 11 years after the screamers are over and done with. But he's like, and Tomatoes just on the phone. Like, no, that's me. I was in this band. I know this logo. And they're like, no, that's Irving. No. Yeah. Well, I'd be, it'd be hilarious if Irving was just another doppelganger <laughs> with straight spiky hair and a bow tie. And it just happens to be the weirdest coincidence in the world. It, but, it, might, it might be. It really might be. <laughs> but, you know, at least there was one good thing out of it when they took the logo. Tomato was happy to see that the image of his face was used by uh, Act Up. Mm -hmm. Actually, it's the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, which is an, an activist organization that started in 1987 for, for AIDS awareness and patient advocacy. Uh, it's, it, they're very 
uh, direct and very aggressive and, and in so many good ways. They would take direct action into working to get the government and the scientific community to like find a cure. Right? And they, they actually did speed up the process a lot with all the work that they'd done. So I think that's, it's really cool. Tomato was very pleased with himself with that. He was like, oh, well, at least, at least my face is there. Yeah. And then the, uh, and underneath uh, the, the ACT UP's tagline was silence equals death. Hell yeah. So that's why Tomato's face is there screaming. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's super cool. So it is, yeah, style and insult sucks, but you know, ACT UP, that's pretty fucking cool. Now, once the screamers had Paul and the logo, they embarked on a tour of the Pacific Northwest with soundman Geza X. And you'll remember Geza X as the producer of the Holiday in Cambodia single. We also discovered in researching this episode that Geza X also produced one of the worst earworm. I don't agree. <laughs> I don't agree with this. I don't agree with any of this. One of the worst, in my opinion, earworms You're of the 90s. You're completely alone. Let's see who agrees with this. Let's play this fucking song. <laughs> It's it's an earworm. It's yeah. it's very catchy. It was it was very popular when I was a kid. Yes, it was um, also it, popular when I was a kid too. I remember. And, and it's a perfect. You know, I just found out the other day. It it takes only one "I'm a bitch" song to walk to RCVS. <laughs> so it's also a good unit of time and uh, length so of of distance. So I I don't I don't know. It's just, it just has many uses. Yes, it does. No, it's a, it's an earworm. It gets stuck. It's one of those earworms that gets stuck in my head, and I'm not happy about it. Like, <laughs> but Gaza X, yes. <laughs> he, he produced. I mean, he's he's a producer. I yeah. Mean, he uh, a lot of times what we see and what we talked about in the past is uh, a lot of these uh, guys who started out in punk uh, end up being the producers and it's in studio producers and they end up producing stuff for Christina Aguilera. Like yeah. who, who cares? It's who a no. Cares? Who it's cares? A, it's a good job and they do it well. Yeah. It's. A, I mean, it is an interesting. T- I'm not shaming Gaza X for this. <laughs> it's just. It's just interesting that the same man who produced Holiday in Cambodia also produced I'm a Bitch, uh, which is. It's that's one of those funny little things in rock history. At least there's a curse word. <laughs> <laughs> yes, at the very least, there's that. <laughs> so once they returned from the tour, Geza and the Screamers recorded another four-track demo. This one featured 14 songs, almost everything they had up to that point, including this overdriven krautrock beat banger, "Through the Flames." I fucking adore this song. <laughs> In her dreams, love is always at a distance on the street at the club. She sits, she smokes, she dies. The night flight got her all choked up. She couldn't really run away. She does nothing. Look out in the beach, there's a knife in her hand, and a bug in her knees, she stabs the sand. 
will die in the cliff. They burn to the stake. They sing us their message. Through the flames. Through the flames. Good anthem song. It really is. I, I'm, I'm a sucker for songs that like kind of go up and then down again, like da 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 da. I'm, I'm a sucker for that shit. I know. <laughs> you know. You hear what I listen to around the house. Meanwhile, the new punks in town were taking notice of the Screamers. The first band Exine Cervanka saw when she came to L.A. was the Screamers, and she, of course, went on to be the co-lead singer in seminal L.A. punk band X. In fact, on the first X single. Adult Books, released by Danger House Records, one line actually referenced the Screamers directly, asking, Do plenty people go for tomato? Ooh. There's two versions. They recorded a different version for an album later on. <laughs> <laughs> so a couple of months after these demos were recorded, the ones that the Screamers did with Geza X, the Screamers traveled to San Francisco for a show at the Mabuhay Gardens, which was the legendary show we talked about in our Dead Kennedy series. Yeah, uh, we did talk about this. This is when we brought up the Screamers uh, back then. Yeah, oh, the, look well, at us. We're, <laughs> we're bookending it now. Well, well, this is how we found out about the Screamers. Yes, actually, yeah, yeah because of this. Because Jello Biafra is like you, shaking all of us. <laughs> you gotta listen to the screamers. So, like, yes, the mutants and the dead Kennedys opened for the screamers on September second, nineteen seventy eight, at the Mabuhay Gardens, which meant when the screamers went on, Jello Biafra, lead singer of Dead Kennedys, mm-hmm. of course, was right there, front and center at the show the whole time. Yeah, because they were huge fans of the screamers and everything that they were doing. Jello called them the best unrecorded band in the history of rock and roll and a huge influence on the dead Kennedys themselves. I mean, in the Dead Kennedys, uh, remember, this is September in 1978. They just started playing their first gig July 1978. Yeah. Which is two months ago. Yeah. It's amazing. I mean, and there are a lot of people that say that uh, Jello Biafra was a little more than influenced by <laughs> <laughs> Tomato Duplenty's uh, onstage antics. Oh, yeah. No, you could totally see that. Yeah. I totally see the whole thing and the uh, j- just the act outs. But if anything, it's a, it's a good influence. It, it, it puts on a good show. Yeah, it puts on a fantastic show because it really is bringing that theatricality to the punk to the fucking the performance performance punk now this show was filmed and eventually released by target video as live in san francisco but out of the entire performance the most iconic moment came in the song 122 hours of fear now we already played the live version and dead kennedy's one so let's go with the target video edition here 
122 Hours of Fear. Fucking love that song. <laughs> love, 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 love that song. Probably, my, I mean, I don't know. It always goes between Vertigo and 122 Hours of Fear as far as what my favorite Screamer song is. But that song was inspired by a newspaper headline describing the hijacking of Lufthansa Flight 181, where Palestinian terrorists took 91 people hostage in an attempt to free their comrades from a German prison. Tomatus sings and performs the song as one of the hostage-taking terrorists. Hence, be quiet or be killed. No. <laughs> At the Mabuhe Garden show, though, the iconic moment came during a long silence that features in the middle of the song. That last clip, mm -hmm. we ended it on that silence. And as Tomata lets the moment hang in the air, one dipshit in the audience, apparently uncomfortable with that silence, decides to yell, you suck. And unbeknownst to the audience member, the next line of the song was serendipitously this. You better shut up and listen! There's one song I could choose to hear a full, like, actual recorded fucking song. Oh, it would be that one. Oh, that is your favorite song. <laughs> Wait, what happened to the 91 people on that plane? <laughs> Are we are we not keeping tabs on this? Did you not look that up? I'm serious. Uh, I think the terror. If I remember correctly, oh. the terrorists were killed, and I think one t hostage died. Uh, I I don't remember. Oh god. <laughs> okay, well, if if it's really no, bothering it, you that much, it's okay. Much, it's okay. Uh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you this. Some, I'm definitely gonna give you one. One person died, oh. and three hijackers died. Oh man. Yeah. <laughs> one crew. I think it was uh, either a pilot or um, one of the um, flight attendants. Oh okay. Um, but yeah. All right. So well, most everyone's okay. Okay, I just wanted to make sure everyone's okay before we move on. Ninety out of ninety-one. Okay, that's <laughs> that's better. Going off the strength of these performances, the Screamers continued touring, playing shows throughout the wilds of the Midwest on their way to New York City, long before the Dead Kennedys or Black Flag blazed that trail. But in late 1978, the distraction that would end the Screamers before a proper album could be recorded came into the picture. More interested in what they could do in the visual realm than what could be done with straight audio, the Screamers began dabbling in film. Yeah, because they honestly thought working with video and filmmaking could help them get a record deal. Like if they showed the record companies their video, uh, maybe they could stand out in a crowd of hundreds of bands that, who just bring out their tapes. Well, technically, I mean, they are visionaries. Yeah. They knew that music videos were the future. They oh, were yeah. just about, you know, Five years too early. Yeah, I mean, what MTV came out in like 81, 82, mm -hmm. and this is 1979. This is the beginning, January 1979. And so they're like, let's film our our sets. And this all started when uh, the Screamers met Renee Dalder. And Renee Dalder was a Dutch filmmaker who he'd come to L.A. to work with Russ Meyer because uh, uh, they they knew each other. Renee, because of him, he made like some sort of like, you know, high school murdering movie you know where, where the girls with the big boobs all die all that business a Russ Meyer movie in other words pretty much and Russ Meyer just pretty much told him like hey make this movie yeah. anyway so Russ Meyer at this time was working with Malcolm McLaren when Malcolm McLaren was like I want to make help but with the sex pistols Yeah. and so Russ is like alright let's do this together let's get Roger Ebert on this who was a screenwriter at that time and let's make kind of like Beyond the Valley of the Dolls 
And anyway, so uh, that didn't work out, as we all know. Yeah. Uh, we would have known about that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the great rock and roll swindle came out with Julian Temple directing the, the Sex Pistols movie and the Sex Pistols breaking up and Sid Vicious dying. This is all happening at around this time. Yeah. So that's how Renee Dalder got into L.A. and, and the whole punk thing, going checking out shows. And, and Renee knew Malcolm McLaren, of course, and he was hanging out with Fayette Hauser. Fayette Hauser uh, and Malcolm were hanging out together. Tomato's old buddy and roommate. Remember from from the Cockettes? Yeah, yeah. Fayette Hauser. They, yeah, they've been buddies at this point for what ten or eight, ten years. Yeah, just about. Yeah. yeah. And so Fayette said, "Hey, if you want to see the next big thing, you got to go see the Screamers." And Renee. Did. He went and he saw them and he just loved them immediately. And so he started talking to them and said, listen, I can help you with your shows. I can film them. I, I have the resources. Let's take this performative punk to the next level. And that's what they decided to do. They're like, yes, let's. Why don't we stand out from the crowd? Why don't we just do like just literally do the future? Yeah. <laughs> let's start now. <laughs> now, around the time that the band met Dalder, the Screamers decided to revamp their live shows, adding violins and a second vocalist named Sheila Edwards. Now, Sheila was highly unstable, but still talented, and her stage presence fit in perfectly with the Screamers' goal of causing anxiety in every audience member who came to their shows. sounds like a handful. What a woman. What a woman. There's two things about her. Sheila Edwards, she was very talented and she was a total piece of work. But what a woman. Yeah, we're really finding out. Yeah, highly. Yeah, real piece of work. Real yeah. handful. There's, yeah, yeah. there's an interesting blog about her, um, about how she just check it into the Camarillo State Hospital once in a while for a nice checkup and things like that. Like, yeah. And she was an alcoholic. And there's a lot of things about her. She was very wild. Um, but she seemed to have a good heart. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but she, but I do know is that she was very talented. And yeah. in that show that they performed in uh, where she would come in and do a couple songs with uh, Tomato, uh, that was recorded when they headlined six sold out shows at the Whiskey in May of 1979. And Rene filmed the show with his cameraman friend and fellow Dutchman, John DeBont. Ah, uh, John DeBont. Yes, the guy who made Twister and Speed and he worked on Die Hard. Yeah. That guy. <laughs> he made Twister. Yes, he did. Me, Joe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this, this house, that house. And John DeBont was like, do the pointing at the houses again. That was good. That was good stuff. You're going to get an Oscar one day. <laughs> so, yes, Renee and Jean, uh, they got they, they got, the footage they got that was pretty good. I mean, the show was packed and the audience were loving it. Like, if you watch it, it's really exciting, actually. But 
Also, it was very hit or miss. There were a lot of changes. Some of their songs disappeared and they worked on new songs with Renee and that some people described more as a, a film soundtrack than an actual live music, like yeah. a real live band. And I think a lot of that was Renee's input on their songs and them trusting that and going with it. But, you know, the Screamers still killed it that night, though. Of course. I, I mean, they did kill it. The, the, I mean, if you watch it, the, the show's on YouTube. It's fucking great. Uh, and, you know, the the consensus among the more, I guess you would say, reputable magazines, uh, the ones that were more established, they fucking loved the new Screamers lineup. Like, the reviews were great. Local punk zines, specifically Slash, I uh, remember, that you know, Slash had given them their first show. Fucking hated it. They absolutely hated it. Uh, this line from their review of the show at the Whiskey, it says it all. The Screamers are the first L.A. band to become a parody of themselves before anyone really knew who they were. Yeah. That's rough. Yes. I mean. <laughs> That's a rough, rough line. I think a lot of times in a lot of these reviews, you see people saying, like, I saw them last year and they were great. And this year, I don't know what happened. Mm -hmm. And it's not just the L.A. punk scene uh, kids who know them because sometimes they can get a little like you guys used to be cool like I get that yeah but also like to be fair like even like New York City magazines were also saying the same thing like they were also saying like are, they're taking themselves too seriously there was a lot of uh technical difficulties as well yeah. uh you know uh they're like who's this Renee guy he's He's like trying to, is he messing up the show? Apparently there was just a lot of problems that they, they were just very overly ambitious of what kind of multimedia show they wanted to have. Yeah. And it, they were, it was just way too early for them to do that. Today, anyone could do that now with a laptop. But back then it was just, it was too many moving parts that Renee did not have. Unfortunately, they, you know, the experience to do this correctly to do the whole show and so at this point they were taking themselves way too seriously like over planning <laughs> scripting their shows taking away yeah. the flavor from what appealed to the audiences before and uh but it wasn't every show like we said it was hit or miss it was very hit or miss i mean but even so uh, it, it's again ahead of their time you know their ideas did not it, the world had not yet caught up to their ideas um but you know if they would have been around five years later then maybe yes like, exactly <laughs> like five years later like the if the screamers would have if everything would have happened and you know 85 then a entirely different story <laughs> yeah. I'm, i'd imagine but even though slash hated the new show the good reviews were outweighing the bad and the screamers were only growing in popularity in july of 1979 they played two sold out shows at the roxy theater making them the first ever unsigned band to sell out the venue big fucking deal now this is usually the part of the series in which we talk about a producer or a record label swooping in to give the screamers some kind of deal or it's when we talk about the band going the diy route and putting out a record themselves but with the Screamers, it was not meant to be. See, record labels could see how popular they were locally, but couldn't figure out a way to package and market an abrasive synth-punk band to a national audience. About the only other artist at the time that the Screamers could be paired with was the Ramones. And this was also around the time that the Ramones were proving to be a grave commercial disappointment, which killed punk as a viable investment. And remember Seymour Stein, uh, who who signed the Ramones, mm -hmm. right? Uh, for uh, all those records, uh, we, what we heard uh, from our our new friend <laughs> that we just met yesterday on a Zoom meeting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he told us that he was Unver a, we'll call this unverified, but yes. it's a, a fun rumor. But I believe it completely. <laughs> 
that at a uh, at a party in in New York City, uh, someone asked Seymour Stein's like, "Hey, why don't you sign a, the Screamers? They they're great, they're fantastic, and they put on good shows and everything." And Seymour Stein's like, uh, "They have Ava Braun as yeah. their song. Uh, <laughs> the Ramones were already hard enough, so no." Nah, yeah, he's like, "Yes, the Screamers with their big hit song Ava Braun." We're not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> they already had enough issues. Yeah. You look around your business and see inefficiency everywhere. So you should know these numbers. 37,000, the number of businesses which have upgraded to the number one cloud financial system, NetSuite, by Oracle. 25. NetSuite just turned 25. That's 25 years of helping businesses streamline their finances and reduce costs. One, because your unique business deserves a customized solution. And that's NetSuite. Learn more when you download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist absolutely free at NetSuite.com slash streaming. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save 40% site-wide. 40% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Well, one source actually said that the Screamers believed that their debut album should be released on videotape instead of vinyl. And since no major would agree to that, and since indie labels couldn't afford something so ambitious, no album exists. But from what the Screamers have said in interviews themselves, they have plenty of chances to go to the next level. But because they were a band of no compromise at all times that needed complete and total artistic control over every single aspect... They turned down a lot of deals that could have turned into something. They turned down a fucking tour with Devo. Yeah, they did turn down a lot of things. I I, I think, uh, especially when you read their interviews, they seem very, uh, like, I, I guess, like, snobby. Snob, they, yeah. Yeah, very, they're, they're trying to create some sort of uh, the rock star mystique thing. And I think a lot of it does come from Tommy Gear, who was trying his best to to he wanted to get a record deal he wanted to live the rock star life and i think tomato was down for that to to take this to the next level i think they really wanted a record deal but it just wasn't the they wanted it perfectly uh, completely totally on their terms and one thing we learned from every series is that when people sign with a record label it's never completely totally on their terms no no <laughs> rarely happens unless you start your own thing yeah even joy division you know who signed you know you know the bands own everything the label owns nothing uh like they still had to be like why don't you get martin hannett and why don't you just do what martin hannett tells you to do like it's <laughs> you know it's still there's con there's always conditions that's why charles manson never recorded an album there you go <laughs> wow we really made a weird connection here screamers to charles manson so with no traditional avenues presenting themselves they were satisfied with the Screamers retreated to film, and it would be a project called Population One that would turn them permanently towards performance and away from the studio, effectively killing the band. Yeah. Okay. So Renee Dalder, uh, he told them, hey, why don't we make this music video thing into more of a narrative? 
because what are we doing with music videos? No one's mm-hmm. gonna how we're gonna watch them. Record labels don't want to look at them. So I I'm a director anyways. I can make a real movie and I can make you guys in a real movie. And and why don't we just do this? I got mm-hmm. my buddy Carol Striken, you know, to to help on filming, editing, and producing. Remember Lurch mm-hmm. from the Adams Family and, and, and the guy from Twin Peaks. Yeah, yeah. The owls are not what they seem. Exactly. Him. That guy. Him. That was the guy. Him and Renee worked on Population One <laughs> and got the screamers involved. So yeah. together they built this multimedia facility to film this movie that was going to be called Mensch with Tomato starring in it. And with the band, of course, except Paul Rossler, he'd left at this time to join Nervous Gender and play keyboards on Dead Kennedy's first album. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did on, on two songs there and then go on tour of Nina Hagen. I mean, he just wanted to be a musician. Yeah. So that's what he wanted to do. I mean, he left on good terms with them, but he did say like the screamers, they're definitely taking an industrial gamble here. It's a little <laughs> too risky for my taste. Which I agree. Yeah. It was it was a very risky move. It was a very risky, yes. And K.K. Barrett, of course, he was there, though. Uh, he was working on the sets in the art department. Well, he was the art department. Mm-hmm. And uh, there, of course, there were all his their friends uh, also joined them for all these cameos. Uh, there was Gorilla Rose, remember? Mm-hmm. Pen- Penelope Houston from The Avengers. Sheila Edwards, of course, she's starring in it. El Duce is in it. <laughs> <laughs> And oh, David Campbell was in it, um, and he worked on the music, and he brought his son Beck. Yeah, remember Beck? Beck. Yes. Like we were that Beck. Eight-year-old Beck playing the accordion, <laughs> sitting next to KK Barrett in a scene of this movie <laughs> that you could see on YouTube. And Al Hansen, of course, uh, Beck's grandfather, whose occupation is I don't know, artiste, I guess, <laughs> hippie artiste. Yeah, yeah, visionary. Yes. Yeah. Steve Berlin from the Blasters and the Lobos. Uh, Myla Nurmi is in the beginning. Uh, you know, Vampira. Mm-hmm. She's in it. I mean, it was just a, a bunch of people. They were just throwing a lot of things into this pot trying to make a stew. Yeah. That's pretty much it. But a third of the way into filming, their investors pulled out, which made them have to stop, you know, all this production. But at this point, the band had gone so deep into this idea. And especially with Tomato thinking, like, I'm tired when I perform shows every night. That's another thing. They wanted this video thing to take off so they could just press play yeah. like, a, like a substitute teacher <laughs> and like here check out this show yeah no more know? performance they were getting tired like Tomato specifically was getting tired of performance yeah it was just taking too much out of him and making a movie just seemed easier to show people instead of having to do it all the time and also because he was starting to get sick he didn't know it at this time but he was HIV positive around yeah. this time uh, and it took f- several years for him to finally get diagnosed and so he was getting weaker and Tomato, he, he just didn't know why. Obviously, at that time, there wasn't like a lot of uh, awareness about this, unfortunately. I mean, this is probably back when it was known as Grid. Yes, yeah. it was definitely back then. And also the band members were falling out with each other. Uh, they were getting tired of having to film the rest of the movie in Tomato's apartment on the weekends. That took nearly a year. I mean, there were a lot of elements to the movie and so many scenes that just don't go together. And the cast was huge. And even though it was mostly about Tomato, it yeah. was just it was just a big mess. They they lost what they first started, what, what they went there for. Yeah. You know, they didn't even play any screen 
Screamer songs. <laughs> it wasn't a Screamers movie. It was a Tomato movie. Yeah. And ended up being called Population One, where Tomato is the last man on Earth after a nuclear war. And it's up to him to rewrite American history while he talks into the camera and explains through song and dance. <laughs> it's not a great movie. It's very flawed and sometimes tiring. But parts of it are pretty fun. <laughs> That's my movie report. Because <laughs> I've seen it twice. So, so Tommy, uh, remember Tommy Gear? He mm-hmm. was who was usually the leader of the Screamers. Uh, he lost his position to to Renee, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, he, they gave him a Renee a little bit, and then a little bit more, and then next thing you know, Tommy's completely lost, and he couldn't deal with that and the direction this is all going. So Tommy quit the movie and then quit the band shortly after. So pretty soon, it was just Tomato and KK Barrett. Yeah, and it was just the two of them. So they played their last show. As a duo at the Roxy on July 11th, 1981, and it was not a good final show at all. No, like they tried to use canned video and canned music and a script. Uh, I mean, according to KK, it was just bad all around, and really regrets even trying this. <laughs> but it was ambitious. It was very ambitious. They were they had so many ideas and how to do things, and it was just it was it it just fell all over them. It, it, it unfortunately it did not work out. And uh, Population One, the actual movie, it didn't come out until 1986, where it played in a few festivals and on Dutch TV a little bit, and then completely disappeared for a while until, I don't know, Brooklyn Bars started opening up in 2004, (laughs) and they wanted to put something on in the back on the projector while people sat around fake books and drank. Yep. Yeah. So all of that work, all of those dreams just for it to be in the background while you're having a drink with your neighbors. <laughs> Sometimes you gamble and lose. Yeah. And they did. Yes. And that was it. You know, the Screamers went their separate ways. Tommy Gear and Paul Rossler, they stayed in the music world while Tomato and K.K. Barrett were, su- and specifically K.K. Barrett, were surprisingly successful in other areas of entertainment. Going off his experience in Population One, K.K. Barrett became the go-to production designer for a parade of mopey yet still highly enjoyable movies <laughs> that were so popular during the late 90s through the 2000s. He did Being John Malkovich. Love that movie. Love that movie. He did Adaptation. Yes. Love that one. I Heart Huckabee. Okay. I really like that. I really like that. It's got its moments. Uh, and he did Lost in Translation, which is nah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but seriously, that's a, that's very impressive that's, body of work. That's a huge. He also did uh, Birds of Prey. Yeah. Wasn't what? he nominated for an Academy Award? For her. Yeah. Uh, best production design, uh, which, you know, her, of course, took Mopey to an unbearable level of cringe <laughs> uh, and effectively uh, killed a genre that had... Thankfully, run its course. Ah. Yeah, yeah. Mopey movies put out by major studios under like smaller studios. Yeah, that needed just yeah, get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just move on. We move on. We have a nice body oh, of work. We the can squid we, and the whale. Yeah, all that ugh, stuff. yeah. We can watch Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind anytime we want. We don't need another one. Okay. <laughs> And all this is, of course, mixed in with K.K. Barrett's work as an art director for some of the biggest music videos of the 90s, including Tonight Tonight by the Smashing Pumpkins. Whoa. Arguably the biggest, one of the biggest videos of the fucking decade. Yeah. Up there with Waterfalls. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I agree. Too. How did they turn into water? Like the Terminator movies. That's amazing. K.K. Barrett also, he did Freak on a Leash. Uh, by Corn. Oh, right. Everyone likes the scat. Everyone likes a good uh, new metal scat. <laughs> uh, and he did this mid 90s classic from Beck. 
Oh, they knew each other. Yeah, yeah, they knew each other. <laughs> Since he was a child. <laughs> Quite as cool as sex laws, but still pretty fucking cool. <laughs> as far as Tomato Duplenty went, he returned to performance art, but soon became a painter while recovering from a broken leg. He got hit by a car or something, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then he found like this paint kit on the floor. <laughs> and, and honestly, that's how it happened. Yeah, that's it. He did okay for a while, but really took off in 1984 after David Lee Roth, of all people, accidentally told a story about Tomato during an interview with David Letterman, which is thankfully on fucking YouTube. Uh, <laughs> uh, tell me about the uh, the club. You're, you have a club that's uh, not actually what you would think it would be, but... Well, that's, uh, that's an... Um... That's an enterprise that we started out in Los Angeles. It's, it's, it's very difficult to have an after-hours place there. You know, everything kind of, they roll up the streets at 2 o'clock in the morning. And we had to have a reason for keeping a place open after 2. Mm -hmm. And um, originally what we would do is, uh, I remember one fella came in. His name was Tomato. Tomato came in to do an exhibit. <laughs> it's an art gallery is what we called it. Tomato. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, and we had it members only from two o'clock on, on Friday yeah. and Saturday. And uh, we had to have some art on the Members walls. Members only to keep out the goofy people. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, and uh, Tomato came in to do an exhibit and he looked at the walls and about six days later, he came back with all of his art and did the place up and everything fit just perfectly. Yeah. Man, you know, around the door jams and you know, on the cusp of the windows and up into the corners of the ceiling at each, it was a custom made framing and right. everything. And it turns out what he did is he just made it all up on the spot he came in and measured the gallery yeah. you know and then made it kind of to order and everything and that's the kind of art that we had in there ultimately we just kept the same exhibit going and going and going and just covered it with plastic on friday and saturday now this is this is not what i was talking about <laughs> it's it's a great story but it's not what i was talking about what are you talking well, about this one right there the, about the the jungle oh that's something else entirely yeah, well that's what i said <laughs> 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 all right he just told everyone on national TV about an illegal nightclub. <laughs> an illegal after-hours nightclub that no one's supposed to know about. David Lee Roth, everyone. David Lee Roth, ladies and gentlemen. Let's He's get adorable. Like, he is a peach. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that was the Zero Gallery. Yeah. Uh, where it was an after-hours place where, uh, obviously, they called it like a membership kind of place where it's an art gallery and you really all you do is just go in there and you drink and you do lots of drugs and you just party all night long 1985 it, it was just a place to hang out yeah it lasted throughout most of the 80s it was just a place to hang out um after hours because no one wanted to go home yet yeah and uh david lee roth started hanging out there and then he became an investor <laughs> and he started telling everyone and it just ruined it for everyone eventually <laughs> and then no one could go anymore because it was just too many people yeah uh, obviously eventually 
really gets ruined. But anyway, we're... well, there was a lot of cocaine to do. Yes. <laughs> well, that was that was a funny thing about trying to get into the zero gallery. Is it was so exclusive. There was only three ways you can get in. You had to be super hip, mm-hmm. which means like really popular or famous. You had to be uh, a hot girl, mm-hmm. or you had to have lots of blow. Ah. One or all of those things helps. <laughs> yes. <laughs> anyway. That rule kind of applies to a lot of places. It does, doesn't it? So, <laughs> yes, they weren't the forebearers of this. So, Tomato's artwork was on there. Gary Panter's artwork was on there. Raymond Pettibon's artwork, you know, Greg Ginn's uh, brother, who uh, he did all the uh, album cover work for SST. Mm-hmm. Like, they actually did galleries. Yeah. <laughs> yes. El Duce worked as a janitor there. Why? How is he in everything? He was, they said, you can only come and hang out here if you're the janitor. <laughs> And he said, yeah. And he would just start mopping and people would laugh because it's obvious that he'd never mopped before. (laughs) Anyway, so things started working out for Tomato uh, at least a little bit. He did still try a a lot of shows. He did some shows with Gorilla Rose, but very local, you know, kind of stuff. I mean, he was on CNN. Yes. Oh, oh, yes. Well, yes, that was, of course. He eventually moved to Miami, went to New Orleans. Uh, Towards the end of the 90s, he was spending a lot of time in San Francisco due to his doctor's recommendation for treatment. Remember, he at this point, he now had AIDS. Yeah. Uh, but he you know, but he still traveled. Uh, he even said, like, with three suitcases, uh, I can go anywhere and a train ticket. I'll go anywhere and I'll put up a show anywhere at all. And uh, yes, like you said, they were, he was featured on CNN and a lot of people from the Go-Go's and X, like they, they would have his artwork up and they, they would buy his artwork and just kind of show up at these galleries to kind of give it a little more star power and things yeah. like that. Uh, and to really like support him in a lot of ways, which Tamina was very grateful for. He even said like back then in the scene, like we were all pretty friendly, but we were also kind of too cool. And now like now that we're all older, everyone's like, being very supportive, and I really appreciate that right now, which is re- it was very sweet. It's very sweet. I mean, the cool thing about Tim, one thing that I really loved uh, about him, like as a, a working artist, is that he always had twenty dollar pieces for sale. Uh, yeah. So because he believed art was for everybody, and he wanted to make sure that everybody could get art. So every show that he had, you know, of course there was the you know big expensive ones, but it was always like, yeah, if you want to take a little bit of tomato home, only cost you twenty dollars. I know, and I really respect that. Yeah. And then um, Tomato, at the age of 52, he he died of cancer, actually, on um, August 21st in the year 2000. Yeah. Uh, over 20 years ago now, which feels wow. so weird. 21. Yeah, 21 years ago. <laughs> it's so crazy. Yeah. And um, yeah, he passed away, unfortunately. Uh, and But he, luckily, he always got to do everything he always wanted to do. I don't know if... if he achieved what he set out to do, but he was always working towards something every single day. Yeah. And I, I really admire that. As do I. No, he could he couldn't sit still. You yeah. Know? And I always I always admire people who can't sit still. You're one of those people. I am so one of those people. <laughs> I actually have to take medication for that. Now as far as legacy goes. It's hard to say. The Screamers were extraordinarily influential at the time, and while the shockwaves of their performances resonate to this day, the Screamers have sort of settled into record nerd territory, lauded only by Henry Rollins, Jello Biafra, and people like us. 
I'll say this, that, you know, the owner of the record store that I go to, Record Grouch, when I told him we were doing the Screamers, his ears definitely perked up. Aww. He was quite excited about it. But that's where the Screamers are. It's like, it's record store nerd uh, territory. <laughs> like, that's, that's who are super into the Screamers. And that might all change when the first official Screamers release comes out on Superior Viaduct Records on March 19th. And I'd recommend you all pre-order that because I've heard one track uh, from this uh, and it sounds... Amazing. It's wonderful. It is studio sound quality. It's going to be five songs. Wow. Uh, I cannot, absolutely cannot wait for it. It was supposed to be January. Now it's pushed back to March and I want to fucking hear it now. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not so sure anything will really change after that comes out. And maybe that's the point. See, looking at the big picture, we could argue that the Screamers personify everything that the 10 bands we've covered over the last year individually represent. The Screamers were on the fringes of almost every major early punk scene in America, from Los Angeles to New York to San Francisco to Seattle, which, by the way, Seattle is the city where punk finally broke into the mainstream with Nirvana in 1991. And in the end, while it is a tragedy for us as music lovers that the Screamers didn't release an album, they could have recorded and released something if they really wanted to. But that's not what the Screamers believed they should do. And really, punk comes down to that word, should. Now, we said early on that punk was an extraordinarily difficult term to define, and I concede that punk means different things to different people. But one big truth that I think we've uncovered in telling the history of these 10 bands is that punk isn't about telling other people what they should be doing. It's about deciding what you think should be done, then doing it yourself. And that's exactly what these 10 bands did. See, over the years, so many different rules about what's punk and what's not have fallen into place. And you better fucking believe we've personally received a lot of flack <laughs> as far as what bands should be covered and which ones shouldn't. But at the end of it, we covered the bands that we covered for the same reason that those bands picked up guitars and drums and synthesizers. Because we thought it would be fun. It's fun. It's fun. Yes. This is a fun story we want to tell. Yeah. We want to. Let us. <laughs> let us. You know what's not fun? Doing what other people think you should be doing. See, despite the dour music they recorded, Joy Division had fun. Glenn Danzig, no matter how much he scowls and complains about memes about him wrapping Christmas presents, he had a lot of fun writing Bullet, and I assume he had a little too much fun making Veronica. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not assume, let's just <laughs> confirm that. And even though the Ramones were pissed off most of the time when they went on stage, there was still a roadie dressed in a Zippy the Pinhead costume holding a sign that said Gabba Gabba Hey because it was fun. Now as far as the question of whether or not Punk is Dead goes, I think the answer is that it doesn't really matter. If you'll remember, almost every musician we talked about hated the term punk, or at least looked on it with an ironic tint. And even beyond that, punk as a music genre was never the end game. Like the Screamers, punk existed in its purest form for only a moment in time. And punk as we know it could have only been produced in those moments. Because there's a reason why we made sure to talk about the history surrounding these bands and the places where these bands were created. Punk belongs in the 70s because the 70s were a fucking horrific time for a lot of people. And music like punk comes from the sorts of times when people are treated like dirt, when they're bored, or just plain forgotten. Now, we're no doubt in dark times as we record this, January 14th, 2021. And some of you out there have even darker times ahead. 
As a result, something will come from all this, but I don't know if it's going to be more punk. In fact, I hope it's not. I hope that it's something entirely new, something that I don't fully understand, because when it comes down to it, music like punk is made for the kids, by the kids, and by its very nature, isn't meant for a guy who's pushing 40. Whatever comes next will certainly be based in punk, just like punk was based in rock and roll, which in turn was based in the blues, but it will be new. See, just like the punks who grew up in the turmoil of the 60s, the kids who have come of age in this century have seen some dark shit. And while it sucks that it had to happen this way, it'll certainly be interesting to see how all of this gets interpreted into the movement that shapes culture in the decades to come, just like punk did for us. Wow. And that's No Dogs in Space Season oh, 1, ladies God. and gentlemen. <laughs> Thank you so much yeah. for listening. Thank you so, so, so much for listening. Thank you so much for coming on this journey with right. us. Yeah, and it's been a year. It's been a, almost a year exactly. We had the first uh, the first episode was released on January twentieth. January twentieth, yeah, yeah. The, the day January twentieth, twenty twenty, the day twenty twenty twenty. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one twenty twenty twenty. Yeah, um, yeah. And so, well, like we said, uh, we'll be back, and I think you know at the, about two months uh something like that with uh season 1.5 we will be back in two weeks uh with kind of a coda episode we're going to be uh taking questions uh that are being sent to our email no dogs in space at gmail.com yeah if you have a question or anything we're going to try to answer as many as we can yeah and, and just have a fun conversation about about everything about all the bands about about, mm-hmm. about what we do and every, everything under the sun it'll be really fun yeah we might even do a where are they now with some of our <laughs> bands yeah. what's what's gone on with some of these bands uh since we've recorded their episodes we can definitely talk about the dead kennedy's mitt romney tweet right <laughs> we can talk about the damned are are we going are we not going yeah. i don't know it depends on what's happening in the world yes are we responsible for that that would be great <laughs> if we were <laughs> but we might we would love to go and also first of all i want to thank you Marcus. Oh, oh, you, no, I'm serious. Like this is all. I mean, this uh, the way I write is just terrible, riddled with grammatical no. errors. But like, it, this is amazing. Like you really, and I know you gave me a lot of props for all the research. It's like, yeah, I just do some reading and just you know fucking nah. write down notes and then send them over. Whatever, not a big deal. But like the narrative and the way the the, the theme and the reason why the story is important and why. Uh, this this is something other than just a stupid conversation is all because of you and oh, you really you really are good <laughs> I just want you to know you're really no. really good thank you darling you're fucking great too oh, all yeah. right. <laughs> well uh, thank you well it's very impressive well thank you you're also very impressive oh okay yeah. let's stop this and get naked <laughs> <laughs> Who's uh, our band <laughs> for next week? <laughs> well, hey, speaking of the kids and speaking of what the kids are doing these days and what the kids are listening to, uh, we've got a band that's made up of a bunch of kids. You know, it's a New York City band. They're all teenagers. They're called Cannibal Girls. Uh, this yeah, is fucking great. They're uh, awesome. I'm loving this so much. Uh, that you can find uh, this song that we're going to play at cannibalgirlsnyc.bandcamp.com. Uh, they do a wonderful cover of the Raincoats uh, song, uh, Fairy Tale in the Supermarket. Uh, it's so much fun. You know, I, 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 they have my condolences. They were about to play their first big show at the Knitting Factory 
uh, here in Brooklyn on in March, right before all the venues shut down. So I really hope that uh, they will uh, get that gig rebooked so we can go out and see them. Yeah, and let's I, totally go. Yeah, and I encourage you so much to keep making music. Yes. And to like make and do original songs and, and let us know uh, what you're up to. Because, uh, yeah, these the kids of the future. <laughs> <laughs> and and if you want us to play your song uh, or, or any kind of music or noise that you make if you're in a band or you're just a guy or a girl whatever uh, you can always send it to nodogsinspace at gmail.com uh, or with or a question for, for our little post-mortem that, that we're gonna do mm-hmm. and uh, yeah so please do we love hearing the new stuff I, I was li- I was going back on emails the other day it was great it was we, awesome there are so many great bands yeah you know like we're going one by one by one uh, and there's just there's there's too many yeah, uh, but we're we're gonna keep playing because we're gonna yeah. be doing no dogs in space for a long fucking time. No, this, I'm still going through all the emails. Yeah, just, just because the season's over doesn't mean your email doesn't exist. Yeah, <laughs> you, it will be read yeah. eventually. I'm yeah. sorry, very behind right now. We're very behind. Yes, but you know, with the break, we'll be able to catch up. So uh, thank y'all so much for listening. We'll see you in two weeks for the Q and A session. Uh, and of course, if you want a, a no dogs in space T-shirt at uh, lastpodcastmerch.com, there's some cool shit out there. Uh, so thank y'all very much. I can't say thank you enough. Uh, for supporting us in this it's been a real dream come true for us to be able to do this yeah uh so uh yeah here's uh cannibal girls uh, no dogs in space goodbye goodbye
have you heard the Virginia Lottery has a new Willy Wonka Golden Ticket Scratcher that has a top prize of $100,000? Tell that to my automated Golden Ticket Scratcher apparatus. You simply put the ticket in here, and the machine scratches it for you. And while we wait, we can play the Willy Wonka Golden Ticket online game with a top prize of $1 million. Just visit VALottery.com or use the lottery app. That's one impressive scratcher apparatus. Use it whenever. What's mine is yours. But hands off the scratcher. That Willy Wonka Golden Ticket is all mine. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna to keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night, no matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale, even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch when it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great.